0: So Money, episode 1056, Black Wealth Matters, continues with journalist and friend, Donovan Ramsey.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life. Welcome to So Money. Broken windows policing compromised our society in a significant way because it took away the liberties and freedoms of certain segments of the population in order to ensure the comfort of other segments of the population.
0: Welcome back to So Money, everybody. Apologies, this is airing a little bit late on a Monday. Normally, you wake up and this episode is right in your phone or wherever you listen to podcasts, but it's been a weekend, my friends. I spent the most of the weekend in the hospital with my son, had to rush Evan to the ER Saturday night. He had a cut on his toe that he got a couple days prior playing around in the house and it got infected. And you know that infections are no joke. So we rushed him first to urgent care and then to the ER. And then I was with him basically all Saturday night, Sunday through the night. So was not able to get this podcast out the door as usual, but Better late than never, right? And of course, better news, Evan is back to his normal self. He's healthy and we will be keeping him on the antibiotics for the next 10 days. And uh, the financial lesson out of all this is that my husband and I will be definitely switching over to a low-deductible healthcare plan. We were on a high-deductible plan. In hindsight, that was a misstep because we've got two kids who are very active, and we're lucky that this was our first ER trip with our now almost six-year-old son, But we went with the high deductible plan because, you know, we're knock on wood healthy and we were not seeing a lot of specialists. We were just going to our doctors, you know, once a year, twice a year, dentist, eye doctor, basic. But now we're thinking, hmm, maybe we should pay a little bit more up front and not be so scared like I am right now about getting this hospital bill. (laughs) Switching gears, Black Wealth Matters continues this week. I've invited back my friend Donovan Ramsey. Maybe you remember Donovan. He was on the show back in 2015. He is my former editorial assistant, former right-hand guy. He is now a, a good friend, an accomplished journalist, focusing on the topics of Black identity, politics, and patterns of power in America. So, important time to touch base with Donovan, right? Key takeaways from our interview. How Donovan's upcoming book, which is going to be a bestseller, you heard it here first. It's called When Crack Was King, comes out next year. The book chronicles the 1980s and 1990s epidemic. And we talk about how his book reveals some of the misperceptions of the epidemic and how policing changed during those years and not just during those years, but for years to come. Donovan's own experiences with racial discrimination in graduate school and beyond, I was shocked to hear what he had to say about the Columbia Journalism School, where I'm also an alumna. And the truth about what publishing pays, there's been this Twitter hashtag going around called hashtag what publishing paid me or publishing paid me. And Donovan just got a pretty sweet book deal. So I wanted to see if he would be willing to talk about that on the show. And he put me to the test. He said, I'll show my book deal advance if you show me yours. So for the first time ever publicly, I talk about my book advances. So stay tuned for that as well. Now, more about Donovan. He's called an indispensable voice on issues of racial identity, politics, and patterns of power in America. And that's by American culture critic, Rich Benjamin. Donovan's commentary on racial Racial politics during the Obama era has been featured in the New York Times and his reporting and commentary on the criminal justice system have appeared in Wall Street Journal magazine, The Atlantic, Gawker, GQ, among others. He most recently served as the commentary editor at the Marshall Project, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning news organization dedicated to the U.S. criminal legal system. And before that, he worked as an editor and writer at a number of outlets, including Complex News One, TheGrio.com, and with yours truly. And so excited to catch up with my friend. Here we go. Donovan Ramsey. Donovan Ramsey, welcome back to So Money and welcome to my series, Black Wealth Matters.
1: Yeah, thank you, Farnoosh. It's It's a pleasure to be here.
0: As soon as I started to draft this series, I thought I want to get Donovan on the show. And for... Loyal So Money listeners who go back with me, you know Donovan has been on this show before and Donovan and I go way back. He and I worked together. He was uh, someone who supported my company for a number of years uh, behind the scenes and I'm so proud of everything that you're up to. Since we last spoke, you have gotten a major book deal covering uh, the crack epidemic of the 80s and 90s. I can't wait for this to come out. It's called When Crack Was King. First question, Donovan, how have the recent events from the, you know, the protests to the police killings impacted the course of your writing, if at all? And by the way, you're in Atlanta.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been in Atlanta now for maybe like a year or so, you know, sort of just working on the book steadily. I happened to finish the uh, first draft of my manuscript, I would say about a month ago. You know, before all of this happened and I was thinking about, you know, what I was going to do next, you know, whether or not I wanted to maybe step back in a newsroom while I went through the editing process, you know, the country continued to fall apart, but most specifically it started to, you know, kind of really unravel again around issues of racial justice, specifically policing, um, which is something that, that I cover and uh, think about quite a bit. So your question, how does, how has this affected my work? You know, it's really hard to say because events like this, if you're a person who covers social justice and racial equity issues, right, that there are these events, whether it was, you know, the killing of Mike Brown, whether it was, uh, you know, the killing of Trayvon Martin or something like Hurricane Katrina before that, just in sort of recent times, that events like those can really drive a lot of interest in the work that we do. But, you know, people like me, you know, we're kind of in the weeds of this stuff all the time so it's um you're sort of put in a weird position where a lot of people want to hear from you to sort of say things often that you've already said or that you've already researched and reported on so i'm kind of in the position where i'm you know really trying to think a lot about what can actually move the needle and have impact but also how i can stay engaged and interested as a curious person, right? Because as a journalist, I'm, I'm just a person who's, who's curious first. You know, I want to answer questions that I haven't already answered. <laughs> you know, like I want to mm-hmm. look at issues that I haven't already looked at. So I'm doing a lot of thinking around how I want to be engaged in this moment as a journalist and how I can be of, of most use and most help.
0: And what do you think are the stories that have been less told or that you find yourself extremely curious around that you want to when you get back into a newsroom, that's the first thing you want to you want to look into?
1: So the reason why my beat within criminal justice has been policing is because I think the system is so vast And there are so many things that the average person doesn't know about our system of policing. Um, You know, there are over 18,000 police departments across the country, each acting more or less independently in conjunction with, you know, whatever its um, locality is, whether it's a county or whether it's, you know, a city. Within each of those police departments, there are stories, right, that, you know, uh, policing is, at the end of the day, a local issue. Uh, You know, it's not a thing that the federal government oversees. You know, we still right now don't know how many people the police actually kill a year. Despite the fact that, you know, there's a 1994 law mandating that police departments report that data to the federal government. There's nothing in that law that imposes a penalty if they don't. So very few police departments actually do. That's still a huge hole, right? That, that it's, it's difficult to even have these conversations around policing and police brutality, because what we know is basically what's volunteered to us and what journalists gather from other news sources. So I would love to see the country really get knowledgeable about policing, to get knowledgeable about how much we spend on police, to -hmm. get knowledgeable about the work that police departments actually do. In many cities, the murder clearance rate is somewhere around 40% meaning that only about 40% of murders get solved in, in many big cities. But I think that if you ask most people, why do we need the police? They will say, well, you know, in case somebody murders someone, <laughs> you know, right. to sort of, you know, kind of institute justice in that case. But the, the reality of it is that if you do murder someone, you're more than likely going to get away with it. That's what we yes. think the police do. So if the police aren't doing that thing, right? That like most people really want them there for, then what are they actually doing?
0: Well, I'm learning, I'm reading a lot and a lot of your work, if I was really interested in The Appeal, this website that you've been contributing to where they produce original journalism about criminal justice. You co-hosted a podcast recently there about about privatization and within that episode you and the co-host talked about broken windows policing which I'd never heard of maybe I should have but I'm learning given what you just said about how very little we know about how policing works this is this was I found really surprising. this it really speaks to the mindset that is I think faulty and it's a general a mindset but I want you to explain to us what broken windows policing is and why it's problematic.
1: Sure. So, broken windows policing, it's really a a policing philosophy or strategy that came about in the 1980s. You know, folks that study, you know, policing and criminologists sort of kind of coalesced around the idea that the way that you could bring crime down, that one strategy is you sort of cast a dragnet over cities where you enforce Laws, even the most minute laws, something like loitering, something like, you know, disturbing the peace or uh, vandalism when it comes to things like, or or at least when it came to things like graffiti, uh, public urination, because it was believed or it was sort of theorized that, that there was some relationship between small crimes and big crimes. So if you create an environment that is hostile to something like loitering, that's a gateway the- to murder. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That loitering is a gateway to murder that, you know, you keep people from hanging out on street corners then therefore, you know, you'll be able to bring the murder rate down. Many cities, you know, took up that that charge. Cities like New York, cities like Los Angeles, and they do it, you know, in in different names. In New York, the name of that was stop and frisk. Right. So if you see someone doing something that you might deem suspicious or if they move in a way that would suggest that they had a weapon or drugs on them, that that then gave you the as a police officer, the right to stop that person, question them, um, frisk and search them. And it became just this very aggressive form of policing that created all of these encounters, you know, ultimately between the NYPD and young black and Latino men. And maybe in those first years of it, what they were doing is they were. You know, more often than not, finding guys with, you know, small amounts of marijuana on them, which, uh, you know, then pushes numbers of things like arrest. And it seems as though the police are really, you know, making a dent in crime because arrests are going up and people are being imprisoned. But, you know, there was it was found that there was ultimately no relationship between a practice like stop and frisk and uh, rates of crime in New York. And you um, saw that in I believe it was 2011, um, but I'm not sure I have to check that out, Um, that that you saw in 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 recent years with the end with with the official end of stop and frisk policing in New York, that there was no uh, significant change in the crime rate.
0: Right. And really what it just allows for is racial profiling and people who cops that are racist to really take advantage of this as a way to incriminate people that otherwise should not be.
1: Yeah. You know, and I mean, really, I think one of the real downsides of broken windows policing as it's been practiced across the country is that it just eliminates people's freedoms. Right. So Policing in our society is supposed to be um, something that allows us all to live freely and safely. Broken windows policing compromised our society in a significant way because it took away the liberties and freedoms of certain segments of the population in order to ensure the comfort of other segments of the population. And I think that I use the word comfort carefully because, you know, the police are really there to ensure everyone's safety. And safety is one thing, right, that to actually eliminate crime and to eliminate danger where it exists is one thing. But I think within our society that not only do we want to be safe, but we also don't want to be uncomfortable, that we don't want to see people who we don't think should be in our neighborhood, in our neighborhood that we like the idea of the police policing aggressively because we're uncomfortable with the idea that something potentially bad could happen somewhere to either us or our property. And Mm -hmm. that's what broken windows policing did, right? Was it said to people in a time where they were uncomfortable with how much crime there was in New York, and for good reason, that it would be hard work to find out Who's bringing drugs into big cities to break down global drug syndicates to, you know, infiltrate gangs and dismantle them or to make the investments in communities that you need to, to keep crime from even happening. So the much easier thing is just to cast a dragnet across an entire community. And, you know, if you get a few innocent people in that net, then so be it that if you, you know, if people do maybe a little more time than then they probably should for a charge then so be it because the benefit of it is that nobody has to go to bed wondering whether or not something bad will happen and i think that we're at that luckily we've gotten to a point that we've seen the ballooning of mass incarceration in this country in this country and we i think many people have recognized that that's not sustainable one because it's expensive two because it's just inhumane and and i think that we're turning away from it I don't think that we're turning away from it fast enough.
0: Donovan, thank God it's getting too expensive because if it was cheap. I mean, let's be honest, right? Money is, we follow the money. This is what this country does. And this is a podcast about money. And people might be wondering, why are you talking about police this whole time, Farnish, But (laughs) it is relevant. You know, it is so relevant. When you live in a life where the framework in which you are trying to live and build a life is threatened, you can't just like, Go out there and be your best self and and become a millionaire by 40 and retire early. I think that it all is relevant and when, you, when I when i go back to the topic of your book which is about the crack epidemic why did you focus on that period in the in history there is a thesis to all of this right to your book and i think it i yeah. think it's about why we are where we are today and as far as police brutality and maybe where we can go from here
1: yeah i was interested in the crack epidemic because um I am relatively young. I'm, I'm 32. I'll be 33 in August. And, um, you know, I was born into a United States where crack had always existed, right? That Like I was born really around the height of the crack epidemic. And so that means that by the time that I came of age and was able to actually engage with our criminal justice system and, you know, ultimately become a criminal justice reporter, that the landscape had been completely altered by the crack epidemic. So, you know, I would get these assignments where, you know, I was going to cover something like, you know, policing in the South Bronx and I would talk to police officers and I would talk to community members and we would have conversations about the way that people were policed and everyone would sort of mention the crack epidemic in passing as a turning point. But it seemed to me that no one Really thought about it in the same way that police officers thought about it as this very violent time where there were, you know, tons of murders in, in many major cities where, uh, you know, drugs were rampant and community members that I talked to just talked about the devastation of their communities and what had been there before and how they felt that, that that type of devastation had been used by people in authority as a pretext for abusing everyone. And so it seemed to me that because there was no real agreement on exactly what happened and because I was so curious, right, that it would have been worth my while to, to sort of find out for myself what the crack you know epidemic was, how far reaching it was, you know, how it changed policy and ultimately got us to where we are today. And I really enjoyed the process, right? That I went to about 14 or so big cities around the country that were hard hit by crack. And I got to know the history of each of those cities and meet people in those cities that represented sort of different, you know, aspects of it. You know, the uh, former mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke, a woman who was addicted to crack for uh, decades in Los Angeles, Uh, a, a man who was a crack dealer in Newark for, you know, much of his youth. Um, you know, children of addicts, children of dealers, parents of, you know, people in the system. It taught me a lot. And, you know, one of the things that it really taught me and that I, and what made me want to write the book is there's this incredible story that we haven't yet looked at about how black America survived the crack epidemic without a whole lot of help or encouragement from federal or local government. And, um, you know, we are now, I would say, about 20 years, maybe a little bit longer um, since the height of the crack epidemic. And America's a different place that, you know, neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy are safe to gentrify. Neighborhoods in South Los, in South Los Angeles are safe to gentrify. Not many people ever stopped to say, hey, like, wasn't this where... The, like the place that we all were like afraid of 20 years ago? <laughs> like, why is it not that way anymore? And so it seemed to me that, that, that there was some good news that needed to sort of be, you know, screened from the mountaintops that, that the crack epidemic is over by the way. And, and here's how, you know, it was sort of put to rest. And really the answer to that is, uh, you know, it was through, um, lots of interventions through folks in the black community, who uh, really wanted something different and a lot of the people that should be celebrated for that are the sort of next cohort of young people who would have been potentially drug users you know because the the thing about any drug epidemic right like whether it's cocaine in the 70s or in the early 1900s or whether you know it's crack in the 80s or whether it's um, something like opioids now is typically that young people for you know about 18 to 25 are going to experiment with drugs. And, you know, it sort of just depends on what that drug is and how we respond to that drug use as a society. It just so happened in the 1980s that young people became engaged with crack, which, you know, chemically is not a different drug than than powder cocaine. Um, you know, it has the same effect on the brain. It's made of the same stuff. Um, it has the same long-term effects on people. Uh, but. It was where we were socially and the uh, position, the sort of social position of the people who were using it, that really spurred the reaction that we had to it as a society, which was really pretty intense, right? That everyone wanted to lock up not just drug dealers, but also drug users. And that's exactly what we did. And I think, you know, what happened was, you know, now we're decades out from that and we're looking at another epidemic in something like opioids and there's a completely different, you know, response.
0: Can we talk about that a little bit? I mean, I'm just like, so curious because I wonder if the crack epidemic was something that had infiltrated white suburbia, what would have, how would it have been different in terms of the response?
1: Well, you know, uh, is, the is probably important to say that it, that you know, it actually did that, you know, white folks are the majority of people in America, um, and are the majority of drug users and were the majority of crack users that, um, black hmm. and Latinos used crack at a disproportionate rate. Um,
0: that's interesting. I,
1: yeah. So one of the things that I think, um, sort of made it, uh, the issue that it was in Black communities was that, you know, a good deal of drug sales were happening in Black communities, right? So, you know, a person that might live in lower Manhattan was driving to Harlem, was driving to Brooklyn to buy crack. So then Black communities not only became the sites for addiction, right? Because people, I mean, people really were addicted to the drug in, in all communities, but Black communities were also the sites for Lot of the violence, right? Because um, you know, crack dealing was something that was done in open air markets in the streets. So then it became Mm -hmm. about um territory between different drug dealers. Uh and it also in black communities also became sites for the policing. So again, it's the kind of thing that that when you talk about the crack epidemic, you're not just talking about the issue of addiction, you're also talking about the uh violence that came along with it and then the response. There are some people who were who remember the crack epidemic, just as the police response, right? Like if you were a young person who weren't, who who wasn't necessarily um, uh, savvy enough to sort of know that, you know, a person that like this person was a drug addict, or this person was a drug dealer, what you might know is that these people are police officers. So, you know, if you're five in 1987 in Harlem, your memories will be You know, your older brothers and cousins and friends getting stopped by the police, pushed up against walls and searched. And that can be a person's memory of the crack epidemic. There are some people that remember the epidemic as, you know, a friend or a relative being killed, you know, because they were a drug dealer and got killed by, you know, a rival drug dealer. Or some people, you know, whose parents were drug users. Or some people, most people who just lived in these communities where all this stuff was happening, and were sort of you know trying to go to work every day like anybody else, trying to go to school, you know it's a really uh, a complex story. But um, to get to your question, when we look at the differences in something like treatment, you know this is putting the sort of um, policing question to the side, but something like treatment for you know black and Latino crack users in the '80s versus you know mostly white opioid users today, it's like night and day. And I think that it just has to do with just the compassion that we have for people based on the color of their skin. People can look at a young white drug user and if you're white, you know, maybe and then see yourself in that person or see a cousin or you know a brother or a sister or a parent. I think that a lot of people looked at Black and Latino people who were addicted to crack in the 80s and 90s. And it just mapped too neatly onto so many stereotypes and preconceived notions that existed about those people, right? Being wards of the state and, you know, a burden on society and potentially violent and dangerous. And a lot of that went into just how we also talked about the drug. I think most people are surprised to hear that crack is no different from powdered cocaine because yeah, that was
0: surprising. And it was also surprising to hear that the majority of users were non-Black and non-Hispanic people, but it's just that the conflicts were happening in those, largely those communities, cause that's where the deals were happening. And so that's where the attention was drawn.
1: Right, right. And then it also mm-hmm. becomes an echo chamber, right? So like once people then think of crack as a Black drug, as something that's either sort of dealt or used by Black people, then that also gets to be where the policing attention goes. And once the policing attention goes to those communities, then it reinforces itself because that's, that's who you end up actually arresting for possession of the drug. And then, then there's a more reason or more cause to then focus and stay in those neighborhoods when, um, you know, you and I know, having been on college campuses, there are drugs everywhere. <laughs>
0: right? right. That, like,
1: you know, like if the police were interested in sort of putting an end to drugs in America yeah. and creating a drug-free America, then why is it that the nation's universities aren't being
0: raided? Right, right. Well, I want everyone to read your book and not give away all the goods. When is it coming out?
1: So it'll be out fall 2021. Um, Okay. Yeah, we were hoping for a little bit sooner, but sort of at the beginning of everything happening with COVID, we uh, decided to push it back, Mm. um, you know, because we still want, you know, a fall release when people want to look at all the books, but um, just to kind of give us some space to breathe, I think.
0: Really excited for that and did you notice the hashtag on twitter the publish, publishing paid me this was an interesting thread as an author who's been published a few times to see the disparities and i the shock of like some of these authors that are like pretty well well established not making as much as you would think Without telling us how much you got for your advance, what was that process like for you? Well, and did how you about feel this? Like, yeah.
1: You should <laughs> tell me what you got for your advance. Okay. And I'll tell you what I got.
0: Okay. Let's do that. I'll show mine if you show me yours. So <laughs> right. my first book for your So Money, Leverage Even When You're Not, it went to what's the word like auction? Went, oh, yeah, I think we, I think it was, I think it sold for 85,000. That was in 2005 or 2006. I'm, I'm, I'm like losing my memory these days. It came out in 2008. So I think the deal was in 2006. At the time, I was working for the com. What really helped, I was a nobody, like I didn't have, I mean, I was, I was working in my field and I was established in my field, but I wasn't. Um, the personal brand, I'm using air quotes. Um, so I had Jim Kramer, who was on my boss at the time, write a letter, say he would support the book, write the forward. And that really helped me get over, I think, closer to six figures. I think that well, there was even like a $90,000 bid, but I liked the editor more. At random house. So we went with Lindsay Orman at Random House. And then my second book was a very small advance because the publisher basically came to me. I was not interested in writing a book, but the publisher came to me. This was like two years later and was like, let's do a book together. That was Psych Yourself Rich. And that was, I think, I want to say 30,000. And I, you know, that's not small money, but having gone from 85 to 30, that's a big pay cut but also I wanted to you know just get back in the publishing game. My first mm-hmm. book was a huge media success but I just didn't have like the marketing savvy to and the online marketing savvy to to drive sales. So and it was also the recession and so the book did not out earn its advance. The second book did out earn its advance so there's advantages to taking a small advance. And my last book deal was a six-figure book deal. It was uh, close to two hundred thousand dollars, and that was uh, when she makes more. So, all over the place. Every time, I would say the most important thing as far as wh- what price I would get was two factors. You know, your track record. The first book didn't have and have a track record because I was, a, you know, first-time author. But I had. I had a lot of support, you know, Jim Cramer and all these people that were in the media going to tout the book. It was also timing too. You know, I there was a lot of demand for personal finance advice, mm-hmm. but there wasn't really anybody writing it for the youth. And again, air quotes, uh, <laughs> you know, like the Gen Yers of the world. So, I still think
1: of you as a youth farnoosh.
0: Thank you. It only reminds me of that, my cousin Vinny Epstein with like the ute.
1: Yes. <laughs> um,
0: so that's me. I pass the baton to you.
1: Yeah. So um, I. So when Crack Was King will be my first book. And I sold it after, I would say about seven years of working as a journalist. And the highest offer that I got was 200000 and I went with um, against, I'm sure, advice that that you would give me. I went with a um, publisher that, that ultimately gave me 150,000 uh, to do it. So well, I left 50,000 no, $50 on yeah. the table for
0: Well, I mean, that's a lot, but I think you want to work with the right team. Yes, you know, you might make that money back because you worked with the right team and then some, right? Because um, you were all aligned. More so that's I mean I didn't take that much of a pay cut going with the publisher in the first deal but you know you got to trust your gut yeah you got yeah. your gut counts but that's great congratulations that's a that's huge for a first time author what do you think was what was everybody fighting over besides you of course because you're fabulous but like what was actually like the juiciest part of the of the proposal that was really you think like that drove the value
1: yeah I mean I think really what is so interesting about the book, from like a like marketplace perspective, mm-hmm. is that you know at at the time that I sold it, there was a lot of attention being paid to the opioid epidemic, and I think people were sort of mentioning the crack epidemic as a reference point, but really sort of talking about it in passing. And um, you know, when I actually looked at the the um, literature, sort of what 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 already existed and had been published, I was surprised. Um, editors were surprised that there really is no comprehensive history of the crack epidemic, that it is, it's it's, sort of one of those topics that we all assume we know everything about because it was so in the news um, that nobody really ever thought to like sit down and look at it in like a serious way, that there are books about, you know, gang violence, there are books about, you know, specific drug dealers or people who have overcome addiction. But the crack epidemic was, you know, a uh, a major issue that swept the country. Almost every big city, it impacted media, it impacted laws across Uh, the country
0: about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know that like, you know, it it became this big sort of pop cultural kind of um, uh, touchstone. Mm -hmm. Um, And that there hadn't been a book. So I think the fact that I pitched that um, at the time that I did, uh, you know, but also coming off of, uh, you know, years of criminal justice reporting. And I was at the time at an outlet called The Marshall Project, which is a, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning criminal justice um, outlet. Um, So if there's
0: anyone to write this, it's you. And that's really a big part of the the deal too is like why you as the author are yeah. best to write, especially in the nonfiction space. Um,
1: exactly. Now, what I what I will say though is that I think given a lot of the interest around the book, right? Like we had seven meetings when it went. To, I'm sorry, we we had eight meetings when it went to auction, and um, and I got seven different offers, and the offers ranged from thirty thousand dollars to mm. two hundred thousand dollars.
0: Wow! Wow! Yeah.
1: And I was lucky enough to have an agent, you know, well, not lucky. I'm sorry, because I paid her 15 percent. But
0: <laughs> She's lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I had an agent who helped me sort of wade through that. But um, I have to say that if I had gone with the publisher that was most aggressive about reaching out to me um, and if I had gone with. Uh, I, I had a publisher that, so, so the publisher who offered me $30,000 was very aggressive and, um, you know, wanted to see uh, a copy of my proposal before I had an agent and um, you know, sent it over and they made me an offer for, for 30 K via email. And, uh, you know, but I had the privilege of uh, being an editorial assistant to News Tarabi, uh-huh. <laughs> and I knew better yeah. than that. So uh-huh. so I said, well, if you would make me this offer on just this rough draft of this proposal, and you would make it so quickly via email, then there has to be somebody out there that could give me more money than
0: this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Know right. your value. Good way to measure your value. <laughs> yeah. Well, you You know, thanked them. Thank you. Now I know what I'm actually worth.
1: (laughs) No, that was exactly what I thought. I said, "Well, this will be the the floor for what I'll do with this book, right? That that if you would give me this for this very rough idea, that I know that at the least I could get 30k for it, Mm -hmm. and you know, and that was really helpful. But I do know a lot of people in publishing, or you know, a lot of uh, young young writers who've been paid so much more money to write things that, look, I'm going to be honest, that I don't think really add a whole lot to the conversation around where we are in the world today. A lot of times these are people who just have big social followings and they're writing memoirs, um, which is a big thing that, you know, it can be useful. Like James James Baldwin wrote, wrote memoirs, um, you know, but publishing is so weird, Farnoosh.
0: It's so weird. It and I, and I want to believe that, you know, good books like yours are going to like go out there and just kill it. But you're right. There's a lot of people getting book deals purely on numbers. And it, look, at the end of the day, it's a betting game. You know, publishers, they don't know, you know, and, and mm-hmm. they probably if you have a portfolio of like 10 books, nine of them Will probably not out earn their advance, but w- as long as one does, <laughs> yeah, there's that always can feed everybody on staff.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's always one book that is paying the bills for everybody. I um, so I ultimately went with um, an imprint of Random House, One World, um, as my publisher, and I was really affirmed before making my deal that they bought a book by by Colin Kaepernick that I believe he's still working on.
0: Oh wow.
1: So now all the pressure is on Colin to (laughs) to keep the lights on.
0: (laughs) Well, I think the two of you are going to be make a great team and maybe there can be some cross promo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's also a reason why you pick a certain publisher. It's like, okay, well, if you've got certain authors in your library, maybe that can be part of, you know, you can network and connect and um, I'm sure he would love to But you know, all support. this has
1: been, I'm sorry. Um, Go ahead. Go I ahead. I wanted to say that like all this has been, you know, I'm still, I would say like an early career journalist. I hope I'm not aging into being a mid-career journalist already. That feels weird. But, um, you know, and, and for the listeners and people who, you know, um, hadn't listened to my sort of previous appearance on your show that I started working with you right after I finished graduate school uh, and I came on as an editorial assistant and it was a really a pleasure to work with you and to learn so much about personal finance firsthand, but also about journalism firsthand. Um, and you do so much, right? So like at the time you were working on a book, but you also were, you know, you had a series of videos with Yahoo and I think some partnerships with a few banks and you were running your, your, you know, your own website and that was a great education in the industry that I don't think a lot of other young Black journalists get that, you know, at the time I was so uh, sort of, it was, it, it wasn't a comfortable trajectory, right? That I, I finished, mm-hmm. you know, graduate school at, at Columbia and came out with these big ideas about working in magazines. Cause that's really why I, you know, sort of went into journalism because so I wanted to do big features and profiles for a place like the New Yorker. I know. remember
0: you telling me that, and <laughs> I was so blown away by that—to be bold and forthcoming about those ambitions. Because I think, like, it's one thing to have those dreams; it's another to say them out loud, you know, and mm-hmm. admit that to someone maybe who's like your, you know, like well, what you work at with, the time, yeah. oh, my boss, yeah, I hate it. <laughs> um, so. And I got you a New Yorker magazine cover framed because yes, I was like, you're gonna get there and you got there, I have to say like impressively fast, impressively <laughs> fast. Like you were not kidding. You did not waste any time and I'm just so impressed. it's so awesome to watch everything that's happening for you that you went after.
1: But, you know, this this is the thing, though, and, I, and I've been looking at this and this kind of brings me, I think, back to how we started the conversation around, you know, a lot of the protests happening in the country and the activity around um, racial justice. You know, you're also seeing this just now starting to touch the journalism industry. And, you know, every now and then there are a few events where people start to have conversations around diversity in newsrooms. But, you know, it was really difficult for me to find work. Um, even after finishing school at Columbia, doing pretty well, meeting lots of like well-appointed people. And, you know, and I think being pretty decent at what I do, I was writing and freelancing for a number of years. And I was really like lucky to get great assisting jobs, right? With people like you, people like Daniel Smith. And I wasn't able to be in a newsroom and there weren't you know, professionals in a newsroom that were mentoring me about not just how to be a good journalist and how to sort of get those reps in when it came to reporting and writing. Um, You know, that I got that from like you and Danielle at that time. And I think, you know, a lot of the kind of tumult that we see happening in the newsroom right now just has to do with an old guard that is predominantly white, predominantly male, uh, predominantly from the Northeast, Maybe from the West Coast. <laughs> you know, like maybe a guy moves from California and gets yeah. a job at a place like the New York Times or, mm. and that space is so heavily guarded. And the folks that get promoted, you know, more often than not look like the people in leadership. And it mm-hmm. can be, I mean, to be honest, it can be outright hostile. Mm. So we're seeing like a lot of those stories really sort of coming out into the open now. And, you know, it kind of, you know, goes to, you know, one of your earlier questions too, and thinking about sort of what do I do now in this moment? I'm also weighing that. So, you know, as a person that really cares about my craft and what I do as a journalist, but also about issues in the world and who, you know, has some skin in the game, no, no pun intended, you know, I also have to weigh whether or not the industry that i've given all of my time to and really my my career and my energy not to mention thousands of dollars in loans <laughs> from 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 columbia whether or not this industry actually wants me doing the work that i want to do um
0: why would there be any doubt yeah especially now well
1: because this is why right because so can I, can I just vent Farnoosh? (laughs) Just like, okay. Yeah. Uh I'm going to vent. So you got the mic. You know, I did not have a great time at, at Columbia journalism school. Mm -hmm. It was, um, you know, I I graduated from Morehouse college, historically black all-male college here in Atlanta and had really a wonderful experience. Like Morehouse is home for me. And it really kind of, um, Girded me in a way that I felt like I could go anywhere and do anything. And, you know, it was my mentor at Morehouse who had been a journalist in a previous life who wrote my recommendations and really encouraged me to go to Columbia because he had gone to Columbia. So I went knowing that I wanted to cover serious issues. And I figured, well, I'll get the best education here um, because nobody will be able to say that I can't do it if I have this degree from this place. And, you know, that's a part of the calculation that, you know, a lot of young black professionals make, right? That the choice to go into debt, to go to grad school is about, yes, getting more education, but oftentimes it's about setting yourself apart from other candidates and being kind of sort sort of shored up in this way that you can become undeniable right so i i went to this little hbcu in atlanta but people will see that also i went to this big white school in new york <laughs> you know so maybe you know i'll be more inclined to get a shot here and there so mm-hmm. you know i got to columbia and you know had a lot of not really a lot but i would say a few bad experiences with with some professors um, you know, was encouraged by someone in the career services office to not put the National Association of Black Journalists on my resume. What? Because maybe that what? would be, you know, make make some people nervous. I had to tell her, you know, listen, like, like it Yikes. says Morehouse right under Columbia. Like I can't get away from the oh fact that God. I got a black education. Like that, it is what it is. Um, you know, things like that, right? So like that or, you know, going to the big career fair that they do And the, (sighs) you know, employers that I've been assigned are BET, they are, um, you know, all, all black interest outlets, none of which were hiring. So then, you know, me having to kind of wait until everyone else has done their interviews with the employers that are there to see if I can get in the line at Time magazine or if I can get in the line at The Washington Post and get someone, you know, maybe to talk to me while they're taking their break for lunch in between seeing other students, that those are sort of little ways that Black professionals, at least in our industry, are tracked out of opportunity. You know, luckily, I did take the extra time to go get into the line for Time, Inc. And that was how I got my very first job in journalism, which was um, an editorial assistant position at Money Magazine, which is how I met you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if I hadn't Yeah, that's where that, I got
0: my start. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and also, you know, like I didn't have a big interest in, in, in mm-hmm. personal finance, that it was something that I, you know, that I wanted to do because I knew it was interesting work and I knew that it would give me an opportunity to write a lot. I just wanted to become a good writer. And, but that's something that, you know, I had the sort of, I guess, vision for myself to be able to do. And if you kind of don't have that, then there's not really anybody. I mean, maybe there is for some people, but, you know, in my experience, if I hadn't had that, I don't know where I would be. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm going to tell you one thing that once your book is released, brace yourself. I think that, tell this to only the authors that I feel are really going to make an impact with their books that, you're going to be in a good position. You're going to be, for the first time perhaps in a long time, feeling like you have options and you're going to have a lot coming at you. And I know you obviously come from a different perspective and you're in it, but I have so much confidence in your ability to be successful in the way that matters to you. You have high moral ground, you you are a quality journalist. You are a caring person. Like, I think good things are are inevitable for you. Um, so just keep being you. Thank you for it. Truly.
1: And you know, and I'm going to give them hell too, because I learned a lot of great negotiating yeah. tactics from you. <laughs> and- As you should. And if you want, I'm happy
0: to like, give me their phone numbers. I will call on your behalf. I think that's also part of what, for me too, has been really helpful. Having a male on my team to advocate for me mm-hmm. um, and to be my agent. And we collaborate a lot. We talk a lot before any negotiation. People have told me, "Oh, we're we're paying her enough." I hate that idea. That that idea that like, well, you know, isn't she just happy making what she's making? It's like, would you actually say this to a man?
1: No, no,
0: you would not. <laughs> I should just be happy to get some paycheck, some quantity of money. I want yeah. all the money. Yeah, every, <laughs> and I'm not going to apologize for work. it.
1: I mean, I mean, I think that 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 sort of goes to the. Um, sort of larger question about, you know, solutions for some of what we're seeing in the news today, which is, you know, Black Lives Matter in many cases has been a call for for equity. And um, a lot of organizations and companies and institutions have kind of reduced it to these very small ass or to the idea of diversity or to equality when really, you know, I don't want to be equal To anybody that I want what is for me, that it it would be great to to get a a Nobel prize or a Pulitzer. Maybe there is not an award good enough yet for what it is I want to (laughs) do. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, for me, my my ceiling is not equality with someone else that, that I want everything that I'm entitled to. And, you know, maybe it's not, you know, oh, you know, we paid this other yeah. guy, this, you know, that, that, that if I'm bringing in readership, if I'm bringing in an audience, if I'm doing an invaluable work, if I'm expanding, um, you know, the name and the brands of folks that I work with and for, then, then I want a piece of the pie. And I think that's, that's really what black Americans across the board are calling for. And at sort of a very base level, what we want is just people's foot's off our necks, right? Like I want the freedom to be able to move freely and to explore and expand who I am. Because it is hard to even think about those things when you're thinking about race all the time. Like I don't know what I report on if I wasn't reporting on race and criminal justice. I've I've never had the time to think about it, right? That if I take a a moment to say, "Whoo, okay, like we really, you know, dug maybe into this Maybe you should do
0: issue. the Kardashian beat. I don't know. You know,
1: <laughs> Here's the thing. I think that I would be really good at it. Like I watch a yeah. lot of Real Housewives, <laughs> like New York are the, you know, New York and Atlanta are the best franchises.
0: Yes, um, they are. But,
1: you know, and like, who knows, like maybe I would be great at like reviewing episodes of Bravo TV shows.
0: Thank you so much for contributing and, and being on the show. And again, Donovan, like so happy for you. And thank you for just uh, being you. And I look forward to the book coming out. We'll have you back on when that happens.
1: Sure thing. Thank you for having me, noosh. I've um, been, like I said, kind of holed up in my apartment. So it's just good to talk to <laughs> somebody and good. all of that. Well, I
0: hope, hope hold up not for too much longer. We'll see.
1: Here is hoping. Yeah.
0: Thanks so much to Donovan for joining me. His book again, When Crack Was King, comes out next year. Stick with Donovan. Go to his website, donovanxramsey.com and follow him on Twitter at IDXR. All this information's on somoneypodcast.com. You can download the transcript. And share the episode Coming up on Wednesday His and her money founders Talit and Ty McNeely Learn about how they paid off their mortgage In just five years 25 years early Among other amazing accomplishments Stick with us Black Wealth Matters continues on So Money I hope your day is so money